I'd like to go back to a subject that we discussed some time ago. Um, when we were studying the Old Testament Psalms of Lament, we spent a few moments on an art style known as the blues. Many artists have blessed the world with blues creations. Uh, <clears throat> just think of Karen Carpenter's her sweet alto uh, as she sings Rainy Days and Mondays, or Johnny Cash's really insightful poem, The Folsom Prison Blues, uh, Pablo Picasso's Blue Period paintings, if you've seen those, um, Stevie Ray Vaughan, you want to know the blues, Stevie Ray Vaughan playing the guitar solo on Texas Flood, uh, or more recently, the, uh, the Black Keys crooning their uh, Turn Blue album and the song Turn Blue. The, these and, and a lot of other blues creations, you know what they do? They draw us in. Through them, we see our own pains, we see our own problems, and one of the best and earliest examples of the blues is this fellow, T-Bone Walker. I want you to listen to some of the lyrics of T-Bone Walker's 1947 classic song, Stormy Monday. Stormy Monday. They call it Stormy Monday and Baby Tuesday's just as bad. Wednesday's worse and Thursday's oh so sad. The eagle flies on Friday, that's talking about a, a train uh, in the days he wrote that, and Saturday I go out to play, which meant work, do his gig. Sunday I go to church, I kneel down and pray, Lord have mercy, oh my heart's in misery, give me back my baby, please send her home to me. That is blues music. The blues are an amazing device. The blues are, the blues are a tool whereby you feel better by, by lamenting how hard everything is. You gain perspective and actually feel more positive by talking about how tough everything is. Neil Diamond captured it really well. His number one hit song, Song Sung Blue, he said, Funny thing, but you can sing it with a cry in your voice. And before you know, start to feeling good, you simply got no choice. Isn't that well said? You see, through the blues, we sense hope that this is not the end of the story. The blues take us to the unspoken but unmistakable conclusion that, that this misery has a purpose, that it's going to be used for good. Even before he knows it, we can tell that Picasso's blue period is going to lead him into greatness. Even before Johnny Cash knows it, we can tell he's going to emerge from prison. We know that kneeling in church, T-Bone Walker is going to be blessed by God. By the way, speaking of Mr. Walker, you... You likely know that the musical blues were perfected by downtrodden black musicians who suffered under segregation and racism. The blues were a way for them to speak out their frustration and their commitment to perseverance. What you may not know is they took many of their cues, many of their cues from the Hebrew prophets. The original and greatest creators of the blues were Jewish. The prophets of God are the kings of lamentation. Their stories and songs are the original guide to the truth that human misery has a purpose and it is going to be used for good. For example, just consider Judah's blue period uh, as captured in the book of Daniel. Take a look in the book of Daniel. Open up your Bible, if you would, to Daniel in your Old Testament. It's right after Ezekiel, before the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, etc. Go to Daniel. <clears throat> and let's read verses 1 through 3 of Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, <clears throat> pardon me, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. We will stop there. As we shall see, Daniel 
is one of those Israelites deported to Babylon. Now, before we continue his story, we need to get some context. Inside the bulletin you got when you came in, open it up, you'll see a place to take some important notes about the history of Judah and Babylon. There are a few historical issues that are... Folks, I'm not just doing this because I love history. This really matters. We, we need to make sure we understand the book accurately, and the more we understand, it can be more easily correlated to our own day. So when the book starts, we were here in Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had laid siege to it as he is conquering the known world. All right? Let's start just a little further back before our book opens. Let's go to the 7th and 6th centuries B.C. The 7th and 6th centuries B.C. were the time of Assyria. They were the world power. They dominated. And yet, these are the Assyrians. And yet suddenly, unexpectedly, the Assyrian power is overturned. They're completely conquered by this one district of their empire. It was the wealthiest district. It was Babylon. Now, old Babylon was the home of the very first empire in human history. 1,500 years before this book opens, Babylon was the first real great world empire. And, and then they were nothing, and here suddenly Babylon is rising again. There's a few things we need to know about Babylon when Daniel opens, about 600 B.C. In the ancient Near East, Babylon is the great center of pagan thought pagan religion, pagan humanities. In fact, um, my old teacher, Dr. Charlie Dyer, has a great postulation. Charlie says that in one sense, the Bible can be seen as a tale of two cities. The Bible's a tale of two cities. It is, it is a tale of Babylon, the rebellious city, shaking her fist at God from her tower, and it is the tale of Jerusalem, the city of peace, Shalom, God's city where His temple is. Isn't that fascinating? Now, this Babylonian thought system, it involved two things that were combined in a really fascinating way. Number one was rule of law secularism. Uh, they, what they did in this new Babylonian empire, they went back to Hammurabi, back to the old code of the law code of Hammurabi from the empire, and they spread their secularized law code all over the world. Uh, they also spread their language, which was Old Aramaic. It became the lingua franca of the world. But that's only one of the things they were about. The second thing was paganism. The, their paganism was remarkable and very superstitious kind of paganism. Um, let me just put it this way. When, when Nebuchadnezzar rebuilt the city of Babylon, there were 50, 50 state-sponsored temples that were burning sacrifices to different gods all hours every single day. The city had to smell like Hutchins Barbecue. I mean, it was just uh, amazing. And on top of those 50 official temples, there were thousands of shrines all over the city. They were so superstitious that they even changed the meaning of words. Uh, for example, before this time opens, there was a people group called the Chaldeans. They were, they were from an area, and they were part of the Babylonian world system. Chaldeans changed from a people group into a description of necromancers. <laughs> it's people who try to deal with the dead. It's not pretty. I don't want to do it. So that, it's really, sorry, a little Aladdin reference for you. The, um, the, this whole word changes to a really, really nasty thing. So, so that's what they've got. You've got this secular order and this spiritual weird polytheism. It made for a very strange place in time. Contrast that with the biblical monotheism of the Jews. You know, the God of the Bible is, is the God of creation and completion. That's not like the Babylonian-inspired books, books like the Enuma Elish and the Epic of Gilgamesh. The Bible upholds Yahweh as singular and supreme. Not so in Babylon. Just take Marduk or Bel. He was the chief god in the Babylonian pantheon. He is a recreator. He never created anything ex nihilo from nothing. 
Everything he created was, was a recreation. Um, he, he's one of many deities, and Bel or Marduk, uh, he creates by murder. That's how he creates is by murdering, well, that and sex, but it's gross and I don't want to go into it, okay? By contrast, Yahweh is the creator from nothing. He is the singular deity. He creates by his word, which is totally unique in all of human thought. Just creates by his word. Yahweh is unassailable. He has an inexorable plan. What, what he is doing is going to happen. He is omniscient. He knows all. Not so Marduk. Marduk is vulnerable. He's always having to fight humans or fight other gods who might take his place. He, his plans are very uncertain. They may go or they may not. The one thing he has going for him is he can ride a really fast dragon, which is cool. Um, so he's got that. Um, <clears throat> here's more. All pagan religions deify nature. That, that's what they do. Babylonian rule, no exception. They deified the environment. Not so Daniel. Daniel's primary focus, the earth is the Lord and all it contains, but what matters most to Daniel are humans. The humans are seen as the pinnacle of creation. The biggest thing is what's going to happen to people in life now and in the life to come. Daniel says that people are made right by God's grace through faith, the continuation of the Abrahamic ideal that began in Genesis 15 and continues forever. People are made right before God by, by His grace alone. They don't earn it. Not so in Babylon. In Babylon, this is their thinking. You've got to understand this. Their thinking is that you're made right before the gods by ingesting blood. You drink blood. I know it's gross, but you, you drink blood. Created objects in Babylon were, were worshipped. And by the way, the reason it was so important was you had to worship the created object in exactly the right way so that you could keep the capricious gods off your back. The main tool was to do everything rightly so the gods couldn't hurt you. Exact opposite idea in Daniel. The creator alone is worshipped and creation's under his complete control. That means he's the one who's got your back. Totally different. Daniel's God, uh, the sun, moon, and stars, he created those. They're just created lights, not so in Babylon. Every time you're reading the book of Daniel and you run into a comment about the sun or the moon or the stars, you've got to understand the Babylonian mind. Those are powers. They are powers in the world and usually negative powers that are out to get you. In Babylon, the human is animalistic until the human becomes tamed by civilization. That's why uh, in, in, oh, I, I skipped one, sorry. In the Babylonian view, People exist to slave for the gods. That's really important. Your job as a human is to slave for the gods. Not so in the biblical view. The biblical view is, is God, unbelievable, unbelievably, he blesses humanity who doesn't deserve it. We don't slave for him. He slaves for us. Now, here's another one. In the, in the Babylonian idea, the human is, is an animal. They're just another animal until civilization can tame them. So in, in Kidu, who is the hero of the... Uh, of the Gilgamesh epic, he's a hairy, grass-eating creature. File that away for later in the book of Daniel. He's a grass-eating creature, and he's an animal until he blesses the gods and is changed. Sorry, I have to say the truth. Is changed by copulation. It's disgusting. Anyway, that's what, that's what makes him become human. In contrast, Daniel sees humanity as imagio dei, as made in the very image of God. They, they have value just because they are human. They're dependent on God alone. In the Babylonian worldview that's inherited by Nebuchadnezzar, this king we just read about, the gods are limited. They are local. In Daniel's theology, God is completely sovereign. Um, in fact, Nebuchadnezzar himself will later uh, say this about Yahweh. After God humbles him, here's what Nebuchadnezzar says, and I quote, Yahweh's dominion is an eternal dominion. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Close quote. 
but that happens much later. When our book opens, Nebuchadnezzar has just won an incredible battle, one of the greatest clashes in human history. In 605 B.C., he won the Battle of Carchemish right here. What he did was he went from his little province, a part of the Assyrian Empire, the province of Babylon, and he and his father had been building and building and building, and they went up and attacked the combined Assyrian armies up here, and Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, foolishly, had gone up to try and join the Assyrians to hold him back. He crushed them both. Hearing that his father passed during the Battle of Carchemish, Nebuchadnezzar made a quick run home to solidify his hold on the crown, and then he ran back to Carchemish and immediately dashed down to Jerusalem, where our story starts. Why did he go running down to Jerusalem? Well, Judah had disobeyed God yet again, and Judah had foolishly entered this war on Egypt's side. They had joined Pharaoh Necho as he went up and it was not good. Nebuchadnezzar was very put out. Um, the prophet Jeremiah, who was a blues master if one ever lived, the prophet Jeremiah had warned the Jews that if they disobeyed God and they fought against Babylon, they would be destroyed. He was right. They were. Their independence is lost. Their government is shattered. Their worship is interrupted as the precious implements of God's temple are taken away. Judah's blue period what God calls the times of the Gentiles, Judah's blue period has begun. Now, you no doubt are responding to all that in your internal uh, Mike Wheeler voice, and, uh, and you're saying, so that's very fascinating, but why take so much time? We need to finish so I can go play Super Mario. Great question, Mike. Thank you for asking. I told you all that so we could see this. The situation in which Daniel served God is eerily similar to our context in the early 21st century. Think it through. Look, the politics of Daniel's day, were a, they, they were rife with a really strange combination of localized nationalism and globalism on a scale that had never been experienced before. Localized nationalism and globalism on a scale that had never been experienced before. Does that sound familiar? It matches our current world analysis almost word for word. Get this. The exclusivity of Yahweh worship, we went through the differences between them. The exclusivity of Yahweh worship, it rankled those pagan priests, and by the way, it bothered the Babylonian officials as well, the state officials. Here's what's most interesting. I cannot find any hint that any other religion, no matter how weird or licentious, no other religion ever faced suppression or persecution under the Babylonians. But the, the Yahweh worshipers did. Does that sound familiar? Here's what Daniel does. He lays out exactly what we need. He calls us to a renewed trust in the God who has a purpose for our blues and uses them all for good. A clear end is assured through the hand of the sovereign who is the mover. There is a blessed assurance awaiting all those who learn to view time and life from Daniel's historical perspective. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. All right, so let's get into Daniel's story. Verses 3 and 4. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. Ashpenaz is looking for a few good men. He sounds like an ad for the U.S. Marines. Um, this represents, by the way, the first deportation of Jews to Babylon. Two more are going to follow. There's a uh, scholar I really like in Texas, a friend of mine. He always has called this uh, interplay between Judah and Babylon the Babylonian three-step, taking off of the Texas two-step, which he does very well, by the way. Um, here's how it happened. 
First deportation is one we just read about, uh, Daniel and a few nobles. This is a very small deportation. This is an exclusive group, and they go away to Babylon. Um, a number of years later, Judah disobeys God again. They rebel again, and Nebuchadnezzar comes back, and a whole lot more people are taken. This, um, this is a middle-class kind of group, a lot of artisans. Uh, soldiers, business people. The prophet Ezekiel goes with that group and, and writes about his experiences with that group. They rebel yet again, and there is many years later a third deportation, and many people, poor people, everyone, are taken away. The prophet Jeremiah tells us about this. He didn't go with them, but in his book Lamentations and in his Jeremiah book, he writes about it. And by the way, there are, there are three returns as well from Babylon, but that's a subject for another time. According to verse 4, the first group to be transported, this first deportation, are young men. The Hebrew word is yelled. Yelled specifically means a prepubescent child. Daniel and his fellow captives are boys. They're younger than you guys. Can, can you imagine being taken from your parents as a boy? Your government, your religion, everything is destroyed. Even your wealthy family is hungry after the siege. And then, in what would surely have been terrifying, you're taken to a foreign country to serve the conquerors. Now, that service aspect is really important. I need to tell you something somewhat disturbing, but it's important that we look at truth. It was the usual practice to take captives who are going to be servants of the king and turn them into eunuchs. That was the practice in the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, and in the later Persian Empire. Here's an example from the Assyrians. This is about 100 years before Daniel. This is a Jewish young man. Uh, he has been turned into a eunuch before he entered puberty. We can tell because of the weight that is on his face, which is very rare in that time, and the fact that there are no shaving marks at all. Uh, he, is, he is a full-grown man, but he cannot grow a beard because he's been turned into a eunuch. Now, we don't know for sure, that Daniel and these others were castrated. But it is likely. So onto that list of horrible losses, you can add their manhood. And these kids were unblemished. Look at it, without any physical defect. Now, the text here is a really odd construction. It's difficult to decipher at this distance. We can't know for certain the meaning is probably physical. And that's important in the ancient world because many cultures, like the Babylonians, had rules about the people who served in official capacities. The people who served the king were required to have no physical characteristics that might reflect poorly on their employer. It has to be where Abercrombie and Fitch got their idea for their hiring practices. It's got to be where they got their manual. It's, it's exactly what they do. All right. Next descriptor in verse 4 is a word you find on the right side of our notes, desirable. My translation says good-looking. I think desirable may be better. Here's why. The Hebrew actually employs two words that, that signify more than just looks. Um, tob mare. Tob mare means a, a quality of joy, a quality of attraction that is visible in your appearance. Okay? Tob mare. Really, really beautiful Hebrew phrase. It's your, it's your words for the day, boys and girls. These are your fancy words for the day. Your Hebrew words are tob mare. On the count of three, say tob mare. One, two, three. Okay, so let's see how we can recognize it. Which of these is Tob Marais? This inner joy, this attraction that is visible in your countenance. Is the frowning picture or the guy who's laughing? By the way, it's the same, it's the same model in each one. Which one is Tob Marais? Yeah, the one on the right, the laughing one. The Babylonians wisely want to take young men who are visibly joyful and attractional. Spoiler alert, by the way, Daniel and his friends are chosen because they are Tob Marais. 
Now just think about that. Ripped away from everything they knew, and yet these guys are still joyous. Oppressed, and yet they're still joyous. This is a trait to which T-Bone Walker could relate. Uh, T-Bone, by the way, grew up in Dallas. And people in Dallas still talk about his joyfulness. He was just such a joyful man. Believer in Christ, a brother of ours in Christ. Uh, For example, there's a young man named Steve Miller. You may have heard of him. Uh, T-Bone Walker taught Steve Miller to play guitar. But that's not why the Miller family had T-Bone Walker over for dinner on a very regular basis. It wasn't to give their son guitar lessons. They had him over because the guy was just so joyful. They wanted him in their house. Isn't that amazing? By the way, he must have taught Steve pretty well because they're both in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They were so impressed with the man's joy. So what would our Christian brother, Mr. Walker, think about my joyfulness? Would would Ashpenaz, if Ashpenaz looked at you, at your countenance, at your appearance, would he say, wow, Tob Murray? Yes or no? I, I know, I know. We all have reasons to sing the blues. Of course we do. But despite his horrible situation, Daniel let the joy of the Lord shine through. Same for T-Bone Walker. How about us? Here's another trait we should emulate. Being able to learn. That's what the Babylonians were wisely seeking. Uh, It's described by the phrase, suitable for instruction in all wisdom. Suitable for instruction in all wisdom. Uh, It's what employers are still seeking today. Uh, we got a big problem, though. Look at this chart. Critical reasoning test scores for the last two generations keep declining and declining nearly every year. I think I've figured out the reason, or at least part of it. Our culture is so full of hubris that the humility required for instruction in wisdom gets crowded out. We have spent generations telling everyone they are so magnificent, so unique, so perfect as they are, that it is no wonder people don't possess the humility that is required to learn. I don't think school funding is the biggest problem, nor is it the competency of teachers. The problem is we have built a culture that lacks teachability, and that leaves us unsuitable for instruction in all wisdom. And I'm not talking about other people. I'm talking about us. Of course, being able to learn doesn't mean you're empty-headed. That's why the next trait of these outstanding youths is they are knowledgeable. Knowledgeable. It's awesome how this ancient directive captures one of the great lessons of life. Listen, here's one of the great lessons of life. Teachable people grow in knowledge. They inexorably become smarter because they retain the ability to learn. Prideful know-it-alls, by contrast, become less knowledgeable. They actually diminish with time. It's one of the few things to which I can speak with some sense of expertise because this was the subject of my doctoral dissertation. When when you are teachable, you will grow in knowledge. When you are a prideful know-it-all, you actually become less effective every single day. You see this in high school seniors who are voted the smartest, right? Oh, the smartest in our class, so-and-so. They are almost always passed up in life by the B student who just kept learning and working every day, right? Or the C student. Okay, the the D student. That's fine. All right. A related idea is perceptiveness. Our our boys in the text are perceptive. Maybean is the root term here. It's It's a common word. It appears in every ancient Semitic language. It means to understand. Now, when it's used like this in this arrangement, it means to be able to understand because you're paying attention. Okay? So let's see how maybean we are. How perceptive are we? I want to show you a video. I want you to follow the cup 
that has the dog underneath, okay? The little dog toy. Follow the cup that has the doggy. There he is. Isn't he cute? He's so cute. All right. Uh, watch very carefully. Follow the cup with the pup. So far, so good. All right. Yeah. Don't lose. Da na 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 da na na da na 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 na. Okay, here we go. You got it. How many of you got it right? Great, excellent. Okay, now did you catch our pup? If you did, congrats. But did you catch the third hand in the video? How many of you saw the third hand go in there? Okay, very good. Our, our, our young men here would surely have noticed the third hand because that, that's what may bean means. They'd have seen the dog and the hand. They were perceptive. Now, the last trait about these guys may be the most important. They were capable. They are capable of serving. That's the bottom line. They are capable of serving. And by the way, this is a fun role reversal because the Hebrew is one of the rare times the Hebrew, Hebrew uses many more words than we do in English. Uh, the Hebrew reads, literally, who had power to stand in the palace of the king, close quote. Now, it says stand because that's what a royal servant did. The royal servant stood in the king's presence. But it doesn't just mean physically able to stand. The text is saying they're capable of hard work. They're capable of smart work. They're capable of working under authority. That's what it takes to be useful to the emperor of the world, to be smart, hardworking, under proper authority. How about us? Are, are we seen as capable of standing? Let me just ask this. Do you work hard? Everybody says they do. Oh, yeah, I work very hard. Yeah, yeah. Never had anybody tell me they didn't work hard. But what do other people say? What do the people who watch you and are around you say? I read an interesting article by Sam Walker, no relation to T-Bone. Uh, Mr. Walker, get this. This is wild. He recommends very seriously... Stopping the practice of interviewing management candidates. You don't, anybody who's going to manage people, don't interview them. And he goes in this article to slam a number of foibles, and then he points this out, and I found this very shocking. He says, two years after the hire, only 18% of management hires are rated as very successful. Only 18% are raised very successful. And he says our number one tool is the interview. And the interview, says Sam Walker, uh, author of The Captain's Class, by the way, an excellent book I recommend. Sam Walker says interviews are a waste of time. Here's what he suggests instead. This is fascinating. He says instead, get the candidate to give you five names of people that know them well, people who know them well. Go to those five people and ask them for five more names. Bring the ten people in together and have a very long jury-type interview with them. Have them interview with you about the person who's not there. Here's what he says. A jury system would take some getting used to, but I'm absolutely convinced that 10 separate accounts from informed observers would be far more useful and truthful than one canned performance by the person with the most incentive to lie. This method also would tamp down on all forms of bias. Close quote. What fascinates me about this is that Mr. Walker, who is a renowned business consultant, has finally caught up to Daniel chapter 1, verse 4. You see, we know from other sources they weren't selected because these men did well in interviews. It was because of what other people said about them. So what would a jury of coworkers, neighbors, friends, what would they say about you, about each of us? 
where they say that we are capable of serving, that we're smart workers, hard workers, that we are capable of working under authority. Daniel was, despite all the uprooting and stress that he faced. And by the way, don't sugarcoat it. These boys were totally uprooted. Verses 4 through 7 read like an episode of Stranger Things. These are poor kids who are stressed by sudden change. Look at verse 4. Go to verse 4. Young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, capable of serving in the king's palace. He, Ashpenaz, was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them from the Judahites were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. These preteen guys are forced into a new language and literature. That's huge. My old professor, Dwight Pentecost, I think he summarizes really well what, what this would have entailed. He says that education program probably included a study of agriculture, architecture, astrology, astronomy, law, mathematics, and the difficult yeah. Akkadian language. And I do mean difficult. Akkadian's no joke. It's an, it's an old Semitic language, but it was completely divergent from Hebrew in both form and function. Here, here's the best way I can think of to illustrate what Akkadian would have been like to these guys. Um, this is a line in Chudzul, which is the dwarf language that was created by J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, Sam, Samwise Gamgee makes the best comment about this language in one of the books. He says, that dwarf language is a real jawcracker, Mr. Frodo. Um, so Tolkien <clears throat> and his buddies, the Inklings, his literary buddies, they always shared their literary creations with each other. Tolkien took this sentence to the meeting at the pub with the inkling C.S. Lewis and Charles Williams and the others, and he asked them if they could make that out. And they all scratched their heads and looked at him and said, that means nothing. So he had to translate it for them, and it, which makes sense. He made up the language, and here's how it translates. Baruch chazad chazad aimenu, which means axes of the dwarves, the dwarves are upon you, which is the war cry of Moria. Okay, These kids in Daniel 1, they looked at stuff like this and learned it. They were not stupid. Okay, They learned Akkadian, a jawcracker of a language, and a whole lot more besides. They also had new foods provided. We're going to skip that for now because it's going to dominate our next study uh, next time. They faced a long, hard apprenticeship. You look at that, three years they studied and learned. Three years. Now, at the end of that time, other sources tell us that they faced an examination. They had an exam to determine where they would fit in the government service. And by the way, other peoples copied this system. It became very popular. Right, right after Babylon, the Persians took over their empire, and they kept the uh, Babylonian civil service system intact completely. Three years of study followed by examination. Um, about 500 A.D., about 1,000 years later, the Chinese picked up on this and, and used, uh, and who knows if they learned it through the Silk Road, they probably did, they used the exact same system. Now, theirs was different in that the study, the exam was all based on the writings of Confucius. And by the way, that was the longest lasting type of civil service in history. It went from 580 to 1910. Today, it's still being done. Very similar in the modern Japanese exam system. You know about the Japanese exams? So kids your age in Japan, are they, they are studying like mad, ju just in school, out of school, before school, all the time. And they study for years and years and years because they face an exam. It's different and different prefix, but they face an exam at, a, at about your age that it is not too much to say that exam determines the whole rest of the course of their life. It is incredibly pressure-packed. 
That one long exam determines whether they're allowed to go to college, what kind of jobs they have, everything else. Um, those, by the way, this is fascinating, those who criticize that Japanese system today, they will hear an answer that amazes me. Every time I hear a Japanese official answer the charges about how that's just too stressful, it sounds to me exactly as if I'm listening to Ashpenaz of Babylon. For example, here's the Japanese Minister of Education 10 years ago, and he said this, these students have had years to prepare. They were provided great food, opportunity, and support. They should now prove their usefulness. That is straight out of Babylon, not Compton. That's straight out of, out of Babylon, all right? Now, verses 6 and 7 contain what I think may have been the hardest change of all. New names are forced onto our captives. Now, we only know about four of these Jewish deportees, but their names are really revealing. Uh, Daniel's name translates, God is my judge. Hananiah's name means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael, awesome name. It, it shows Yahweh's preeminence. His name means who is what God is. Isn't that a great name? And Azariah's name signifies Yahweh has helped or, or Yahweh will help. It depends on, on how you translate it. Now, these weren't rare names in Jewish history, but, but they were much rarer at the end of Judah's independence. The, the, the people of Judah had been disobeying continually, and by the time these kids are born, there were very few parents who were naming their sons after Yahweh. Names matter. In Scripture, a person's name tells a story. It tells us what life was like at the time of their birth, or it tells us about the plans the Lord has for their, for their life. Further, na name, never forget this. Name in the Bible always represents a person's character. The fact that these families named their sons such godly names is a really powerful testimony to the character they were developing in their sons. But now, Ashpenaz forces them to go by new names. And in every case, the Hebrew name that refers to God was replaced by a name that refers to a Babylonian deity. Now, Daniel's is the hardest one to figure out. He's named Belteshazzar, and that means protect his life. But, but it's got an allusion to, it, it's two different they would have only referred to one. We don't know which one. It refers to either Marduk or to Nebo, Babylonian gods. Shadrach is the command of Aku. Aku is the moon god. Very powerful. Meshach's name, instead of who is what the Lord is, is changed to who is what Aku is. Can you imagine? What a beating. And Abednego is a really funky, old-fashioned way to say servant of Nebo. Only once in my life have I experienced a tiny taste of the trauma they must have felt here. I've shared this story with some of you before. I, um, I was standing with my classmates at the very start of kindergarten, our very first day of kindergarten, and, and we, were, we were all standing there. Mrs. Tomberlin was calling roll. And Mrs. Tomberlin got to the bees, and she said, Michael Broderick. I thought, Michael Broderick? Who is Michael Broderick? She said it again, Michael Broderick. And I, true story, I looked around. I thought, I must have a cousin in here. I can't, I, I don't know any, I'm Wayne, I don't know any Michael Broderick. And then, to my everlasting consternation, Mrs. Tomberlin pointed her finger right at me and looked at me and very gently said, that's you, dear. Your name is Michael Broderick. No, ma'am, my name's Wayne. No, it's Michael Broderick. Suddenly, this authority who had me captive is changing my name. I, I managed somehow to keep the tears back and to, and to be respectful as I had been trained. But boy, the minute school was out, I ran home. I ran to my mommy and I said, Mommy, mommy. I said, what's wrong? Oh my goodness. I said, Mommy, Mrs. Topolin said my name is Michael Broderick. And I will never forget the feeling. My mom said, well, it is, dear. <laughs> what? 
apparently mom and dad had a disagreement. She wanted to name me Wayne. He wanted to name me Michael. They chose Michael Wayne. But while dad was at work all day, she called me Wayne, and she won. <laughs> I never knew this. So my name is Michael Wayne, right? Now, it was only years later. It was years later when I started seeing the import of names in Scripture that I realized how deeply that affected me. You know, much of my understanding of self was wrapped up in that name, and I'm not even Hebrew. And it was snatched away in a moment by an authority figure to whom I was captive. And it had to be far, far worse for our Hebrew heroes. And yet somehow these four, look at this, these four kept their self-image intact and they kept their self-image grounded in Yahweh. They understood the name doesn't matter. A rose by any name was fellow sweet. Although I do like this. Every time Daniel refers to himself in his book, you ever notice this? Never calls himself Belteshazzar. What does he always call himself? Daniel, right? Here's how I put it in your notes. Take a look. Even though completely uprooted, these guys retained their self-images intact and based on Yahweh. And further, as we're going to see over the coming days, further, the, these guys become incredibly useful to both the holy God and the unholy government whom they have to serve. In fact, Daniel and these expats, they brought salt and light to Babylon as God had originally intended Israel to do to all the nations. Think about that. And, and let's make sure we hold the mirror of the Scripture up to our own lives. Many Christians can relate to Daniel's pains. I hear the blues being sung a lot in church these days. I, I see the hurt in the letters I receive. I just grabbed four, just recent letters. Um, Wayne, there are no good people at my work. Uh, I can't find any Christians in my school. I am being forced by a pagan government to identify with nonsense. Pastor Wayne, it is super hard to learn the things I have to learn to be effective in this crazy society. And I could go on and on, but we'll just stop there. These sweet, aching letters usually go on to ask something like this. What do I recommend can be done to alleviate the pain or to, or to make everything better? The normal question is something like, what can we do to fix this? Christian, I know you feel out of place here. As the New Testament declares, this world is not our eternal home. But... The big question isn't what we can do to feel more comfortable here in Babylon. The big question is, what are we going to do to be useful? What are we going to do to be useful? Are we just going to check out? Are we just going to withdraw from society and click, click? There's no place like home. There's no place. Is that, is that what we're going to do? That is not the biblical way. Look again at what our forebears did under incredibly stressful circumstances. They retained their self-images intact based on Yahweh, and they became incredibly useful both to the holy God and the unholy government. And friends, I believe that is what the Lord wants for every one of us as well. As we're going to see over the next few weeks, each is required. Each of these is required. We're going to learn how to keep our bodies and souls firmly grounded in God's grace. We're going to learn how to be useful to God and to humans alike, even very flawed human governments. Because if we lose sight of, of, of who we are in Jesus, we can't really be useful. But if we, were, if we remember who we are, but we don't stand before the king to serve, then likewise, we are useless. And I know, I know what you're asking next. You're excited about this, and in your Dustin Henderson voice, you're saying, well, when can we start? Great question. Thank you, Dustin, for asking. Um, in this world of stranger things, we should probably begin where God's text does, with character. We should commit to becoming ever more joyfully attractional, ever more teachable, knowledgeable, perceptive, able to serve. 
Joyfully attractional. I don't have time. I want to do one little thing on each of these. Joyfully attractional. Let me tell you one thing very quickly I think we can do to be more joyfully attractional. More tobe mare. Stop whining. Stop it. When you catch yourself doing it, confess it's wrong. Lament. Yes, lament. Lamentation's beautiful. Sing the blues, which always take us to a point of recognizing that this is not the end, and there is a beautiful end to the story. Sing the blues, but don't whine. I don't think there's anything in our culture that erodes our joyful attraction more than whining. Teachable. As we said earlier, what's the key to becoming teachable? Humility. Kill that insecure fear that rules your days. Kill that pride that rules your heart. Kill it inside your soul. Knowledgeable. Keep growing. Keep learning. Perceptive. Again, I just have one suggestion. If you want to increase your perceptivity, put down your phone. Seriously. Look. Observe. Read something that makes you think. Enjoy life. You don't have to record it. You really don't. Just enjoy it. It'll make you much more perceptive. Able to serve. You know that we stand before the real king who is God, but he clearly expects us to also serve by standing before human authorities as well. To do so, here's one thing I think may be very important. Stop fighting against every authority you don't adore. Every authority with whom you don't agree on everything, quit fighting them. If we want to serve well, we've got to grow up and quit being rebellious all the time. Amen? Pray with me, please, about those things. Father, I pray for myself, my brothers and sisters, that we will be joyfully attractional and teachable and knowledgeable and, (laughs) please, much more perceptive and able to serve. Speaking of serve, thank you for the offering we're about to take. It's one of the great ways we get to serve you, and we pray you use it for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.